Whether your son is athletic or not, he will be affected by the intersection of masculinity and sport. Stay tuned for this episode where we untangle this knot. But first, these messages from our sponsors. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Hey, Jen, what are you doing this winter to take care of yourself and your family? I'm doing a couple different things. Winter is always tough for me. It's dark, it's cold, all kinds of blah goes around. So I am committing to getting up, which I hate doing, but getting up and including some movement in every day. I am journaling. Those two things are both so important for my mental health. And I've started taking Sambucol every day. I really like the samples they sent us, Janet. I do too. I've started taking them as well. And you know what? I just feel kind of happy with myself that I'm taking care of myself in that way. And, mm-hmm. and the way of using elderberries, which is from nature, and just having that extra little boost in my wellness routine. I like that there are so many different options too. We got a sample of the gummies. We got a sample of the drink powder and the syrup. I love the gummies. And I gave one to my 18-year-old to, to see what his response was. He said, solid, which is very high praise for an 18-year-old boy. Oh, yeah. Oh yeah. We <laughs> listeners, we are talking about Sambucol. This is powered by nature superfruit, which is black elderberry. Go to sambucolusa.com. That's S-A-M-B-U-C-O-L-U-S-A.com and use the discount code BOYS15 to get 15% off of your next order. Another way to stay in good health is to use a properly fitting mask. COVID levels are spiking in some areas. And if that is the case where you are, you might want to consider upgrading your face mask. LCP Medical, one of our sponsors, makes a frontline protective face mask. It comes with five replaceable N95 filters. Now that we're getting out and about a little bit more, you need to have more protection. It's a good idea to keep a higher level of protection mask around for you or your kids so that when virus levels are spiking in your area, you have this option. You can provide a little bit of extra protection uh, without a lot of extra effort. You can see all of the masks at lcpmedical.com. Use onvoice22 as your coupon code. 
for 10% off your entire order. That's lcpmedical.com. This is On Boys Parenting Podcast. We are your hosts, Jennifer L.W. Fink and Janet Allison. Sports and masculinity have long been intertwined. For a long time, boys and men were the only ones who could play sports. And athletic fields and locker rooms were really seen as places where boys become men. And we've seen where that can lead. They can learn great lessons about teamwork and sportsmanship and some not so great things. We have all heard little boys being told to man up and rub some dirt on it and play past the pain when they're four years old. We have heard locker room talk. And we have heard stories of horrific hazing that has happened in some high school and college locker rooms. And each of us can probably name multiple top athletes who have been accused of sexual assault, domestic violence, and murder even. And on the flip side, in recent years, it seems like there's been some movement in this field, um, pretty amazing examples of male athletes pushing back against gender stereotypes. The first one I noticed, it was 2014. And the only reason I know that is because I wrote it down. 2014, I was watching NFL football and there was a post-game interview with the player T.Y. Hilton. And he got emotional in this post-game interview. Uh, His newborn daughter had just been born. He was playing on you know, next to little sleep. And, and he started tearing up and you could hear the emotion in his voice. And what was so beautiful about it was that both of the male interviewers commented positively on it. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, did I just hear this on NFL Sunday? And since then, you know, we have had Olympian Michael Phelps. He's talked honestly about his depression. Um, We have heard NBA players, DeMar DeRozan and Kevin Love. They've talked about their experience with depression and panic attacks. And we have had openly gay male players in pretty much every professional sport. So there's this, there's this mix and whether your son is interested in sports or not, whether he plays or not, he is going to be affected by all of this intersection of masculinity and sports. And so today we're going to dig into all of that. And to help us, we have invited a masculinity scholar and dad, Michael Keeler. He is a research professor in masculinity studies at the Workland School of Education at the University of Calgary. He is also a dad to two children, a son aged 18 and a daughter 20 years old. Welcome, Michael. Thank you. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Let's unpack this a little bit. How did masculinity and sport get so intertwined that they become almost synonymous in some people's minds? Yeah, it's a really good question. And uh, I I think there's a long narrative around boys dominating the field and boys being trained to be men and sport and athleticism was yet another arena in which boys and men could publicly demonstrate strength, a domination, um, you know, power over other men. And so here we have, you know, one more arena bastion of the male elite where they uh, name themselves, establish themselves 
in that hierarchy of masculinities. Uh, so this intersection of masculinity and sport and athleticism comes to be an arena that is also a public spectacle uh, for the ways in which men, boys perform and prove themselves as men, um, not only to their opponent, but to the, the audience. So, so there we have it. There we have the context for sport and masculinity coming together. That's really interesting. You know, I hadn't thought about that, but as our societies evolved and changed and there was less, let's go conquer and let's go take over this country or this other space in this country. It's almost like this recreation in, in small scale. We see that uh, through school. We th see it in parenting, the opportunity to you know, create this one upmanship to be one better than uh, the other boys on the field to prove yourself to be strong. And as I think you said, partially in your introduction is to, if there's no pain, there's no gain. Yeah. And, um, and use that as, as a way to demonstrate, not only in case parents to them, that you're one of the boys and you're tough and you're strong, but also to show the other boys on the field that you can withstand that pain and not show that you are in pain. And it starts so early. I'm thinking about, you know, the Pop Warner Football League we have here in America and Little League. And, and I, I, I want to think that it starts innocently because, you know, mom, Jen, you've probably had this mom of four, five, six-year-old, they got to have an outlet for these active boys. And it is a place to expend some energy. And I'm not sure that the thought is there as you're putting your boy in that first organized sport that this is the opening to exposure to so much of this hierarchy. Got to be tough. Show everybody. And then all of a sudden you're, you're in it and you look around and go, oh my gosh, this is happening. I mean, how do you prevent it or how do you steer it into a positive direction? Well, that's, I think you bring up a good point, Janet, this whole idea that um, many of us as parents, I include myself in there, might operate from the assumption that boys need to expend energy. And we equate that with physical activity and we equate that usually with physical activity meaning um, an opportunity or an outlet for aggressive activity mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and um, we think probably less about for example ballet uh, we think less about for example swimming um, mm -hmm. because again if you think about these categories of sport you think about some as more highly valued and valorized than others. And again, that goes to this hierarchy of what kinds of sports do we prefer or do we want our children, our boys to participate in? And you think of football and rugby, um, you think of soccer, hockey as high up on the scale. And as you work down, um, you know, swimming, certainly lower for boys and men, because again, it's not associated as a contact sport. And so that ability to, to show physically your strengths doesn't come through in, in something like swimming or uh, badminton. Uh, or, so again, this we purposely look for uh, as parents and our, 
are aware of the kind of currency that those sports may hold in terms of boyness, in mm-hmm. terms of maintaining and, and perpetuating this notion about what it means to be a boy and what it means to be a man. Yeah. And so, so that's, I think, to answer your question. I mean, we do think about the activity and energy that boys need to expend as being one that's always around sporty activity. Right, right. And and it may come down from dad, you know, dad, well, dad played football when he was young or baseball when he was young. So he, of course, he wants his boy to have that, that experience as well. I'm thinking about other sports, rock climbing. I just watched an amazing movie, The Alpinist, about a, a young Canadian who that's what he did is he free climbed rock faces. And, and even with swimming, you think about diving. These are sports that take superior strength and focus, yet they aren't, as you said, they're not as valued as football, baseball, basketball. But when right. it comes to parenting, right, and I have children in my house, as you know, Janet, Michael, you might not, I live in rural America. So diving is not, and frankly, never going to be an option for my children. That's just not an option that's offered mm-hmm. here. Uh, rock climbing, uh, nope, not an option here. <laughs> you know, in so many places, you are limited by what is available. And what is available is definitely affected by all of these cultural norms that you were saying, you know. So where I am, if you have a child that you want to put in a sport, whether that child is male or female, your options are um, baseball, softball, basketball, football, soccer, bowling. That's another one. Rural Wisconsin, German heritage. (laughs) So it, it can be so difficult for parents because even if you as a parent you are conscious and you're thinking about all this and what messages do I want my son to absorb? We are all affected by what's available to us, which is affected by our community values, which is affected by everything else. And it gets so difficult. It, it does. And, and I think that's why we, we need to, as parents, um, think carefully about why do we want to uh, enroll our children, our sons, mm-hmm. daughters, in certain activities. I know we're focusing on sports, but, uh, you know, for myself, when I was growing up, I learned to skate, learned to swim, canoe, ski. We didn't encourage our son to go into hockey nor football. He sort of navigates different sports, plays basketball. He's an avid skier, strong swimmer. And, and I think to your point, Jennifer, is is we just need to be very mindful of what kind of message are we giving to our children about why they're participating. There's lots lots of activities. Um, and if going back to, I think what Janet said, if we think about, are we putting our sons in these activities to expend energy? Well, then um, that could be virtually any kind of activity mm-hmm. from running to cycling to dance. We just need to be... Uh, aware of, you know, as again, I think Janet said about, you know, is, is it the parent living through our children? And we've all seen that, haven't we? Right. And, and, and is it an opportunity for the parents to, um, again, use this as a stage to, to show that your son 
fits in with the boys or to make sure that he understands what the rules of masculinity are um, because we need to toughen him up in, in that arena and make him a real man. And, and parents do do that because they worry that perhaps their son may seem effeminate. Mm-hmm. Um, so why not put him into the boxing club? Why not put him into the judo club? And, and I think we, again, need to um, acknowledge and be aware of the sort of intentional and purposeful ways that we uh, contribute to our children's understandings of gender through certain activities. I appreciate you highlighting in culture, there's often this conflation between activity equals sports, equals Mm -hmm. organized team sports, equals the ones we see on TV. I know that for myself, I did not identify as athletic in any way, shape or form growing up. Because when I was growing up, gym class was primarily, it was all about sports, which I wasn't good at, didn't care about. And so for years, that actually limited my physical activity. It wasn't until after I got out of school that I realized that there are active things I like to do, like hiking, like dancing, like aerobics, like swimming. So that is a really important point. And parents Whatever options are available to you where you are in terms of sport, those are options. But you can also be introducing these other activities Mm -hmm. as a family and making sure that your children have access to things beyond the organized sports and activities that everyone else is doing. Right. And I, I think along that lines, too, is, I mean, we have to accept the fact that these are gendered spaces and they are gendering processes uh, through the mere participation of being in, as you mentioned earlier, locker rooms, there is conversations that go on there and they're policed. They're, uh, there's a level of surveillance that goes on in terms of how those conversations evolve. Is it just more of the boys being boys? And for some parents, that is what they are buying into. That is what they want their sons to to have an opportunity to become a part of and to learn how to fit in with the rest of the boys. And that's why that for some parents, it's a matter of excluding other sports because that won't give them the kind of cachet mm-hmm. or the kind of currency, uh, particularly if you then transfer that into a school setting yep. and your son says, well, actually I'm in ballet. Um, you know, and I've said ballet a couple of times and um, I found it interesting just recently, the Canadian Ballet School in Toronto actually had a larger number of boys. And I'm, I don't want to misspeak, but we can always check um, a larger number of boys in one of the gradu- graduating from their ballet school recently, uh, more so than uh, girls. And for oh, me, that's I, awesome. Yeah, it's quite striking mm-hmm. um, that there's a greater acceptance and a greater awareness of some parents to say, we would like you to participate in an activity that you're interested mm-hmm. in. And, and so I, I think, again, going to what we've already been mentioning is um, we have to think carefully about, do we want our sons in this case to, to be a part of that group of boys? And what does that provide them 
for for you as a parent and for them as an individual? Okay, but I, so I'm I'm thinking about all those listeners out there whose sons love soccer, love foot, you know, they're totally into it. You're not going to stop that boy from participating. It is his social cachet. It is what he loves. How do you, as the parent, likely the mom, because you're not in the locker room and you're you're a mom and you actually might not even understand or know what's actually going on in the locker room and your son is certainly not going to probably be telling you so how do you as the parent counteract but also i guess it's not just counteract but in addition to how do you support another viewpoint in his life and i know that you're probably doing that all along but to really, really get specific about these examples and support him in being less, I guess, less gendered. Would you say that? Less, less bought into the masculine hierarchy. This episode is sponsored by By Heart. Babies need to eat. And whether you breastfeed or bottle feed, use formula, combine all of the above, you need options. We wanted to let you know about Byheart Baby Formula. Byheart has a patented protein blend that gets the closest to breast milk. It includes two of the most abundant proteins in breast milk, and Byheart actually ran a clinical trial comparing their formula to a leading infant formula and proved that babies on Byheart have softer poops, less spit up, and easier digestion. Byheart is also the only U.S. made infant formula to use organic grass-fed whole milk. So if you need baby formula for your baby, consider Byheart. New customers can get 10% off your first order by using code ONBOYS at byheart.com. That's B-Y-H-E-A-R-T dot com slash podcast. And it is 10% off your first order. Byheart.com slash podcast. This is a limited time offer and additional terms and conditions may apply. We all know that vitamins can help fill nutritional gaps in our diet, but a lot of us don't like to take vitamins because we don't like swallowing pills. How do you feel about that, Janet? There's some days that I look at my vitamins and go, yeah, I should take those. I'll do it later. But I'll tell you what's changed. I have gotten easy melt vitamins. I have the D3 and I have the B12s and a multivitamin. And I just pop them in my mouth and they dissolve. And I don't have to think about swallowing a vitamin. And you don't necessarily need water either to have on hand to get this big vitamin now. Yeah, no. And they taste good. And they're sugar-free. They melt quickly. The reason they melt is because of plants, not chemicals. Ah, plant-based nutrition. For a limited time only, you can receive a free, free three-month supply of Easy Melt Vitamin D3 with your first purchase. To claim your free D3, visit try.easymelts.com slash onboys. That's Try T R Y dot easy melts, easy M E L T S dot com forward slash on boys. 
Yeah, if if I can try to answer that, um, I'm not sure it's about being less gendered. Maybe it is about being more understanding, appreciative of diverse gender identities and diversity of masculinities in the sense that we, we can help. Again, I, I'm sort of focusing on boys and I can speak more broadly, but we can help our children to see that not all boys participate in, for example, hockey. That doesn't make them any less of a boy um, or a young man. There are many options out there. And for, for many of us as parents, it, it's a really important point to allow our sons to consider other options and not feel that pressure to, to play soccer or to play football. Um, because Okay, but let me, those- let me ask you this, because here's some real examples that I encountered as a parent of boys who, who were playing sports, right? So I've got a barely six-year-old out there in the outfield at a coach pitch baseball game. Okay, outfield and coach pitch baseball is boring as all get out because nobody can hit it to the outfield. You are literally just standing there waiting for your turn to come in and back. So there's a kid standing there in the outfield and this kid is bored to tears and he's looking around at the grass and he's kicking the dirt and he's looking at the flowers and the coach comes up and says, Hey, are you a ball player or are you more interested in playing in the sand? Now the tone and the delivery makes it very clear what the correct answer here is, right? That the correct answer is I should be a ball player and I should be focused and that boys, men, don't play with the sand and don't play with the dirt. And these are the kinds of messages that my boys and almost all boys encounter in playing sport. To me, it wasn't, you know, egregious enough to pull him off the team, but how do I manage this stuff when I see it happening? And then what? Do you want me to give you the right answer? (laughs) I want you to give me your answer. (laughs) So, so I, uh, yeah, you made me smile because I, I do remember even with my son, you know, sitting out in the field playing soccer and, you know, just sort of distracted and then starts picking daisies and so be it. If he's distracted and picks daisies, so be it. But you point to the, the kind of strength of the messaging that coaches, the kind of impact coaches can have on our youth. Are you a man or a mouse? Are you going to play the sport or play in the sandbox as though playing in the sandbox and having creative time isn't valuable? And so again, um, I think we've got lots of examples around the impact coaches can and are having both on non-professional sports, but also in professional sports and the kind of uh, impact coaches uh, in terms of the pressures they put on the mental health of professional athletes have. And that, and that doesn't only happen at the elite level. Uh, we, we see that pressure, you know, in the, the junior leagues mm-hmm. and the you know, children and um, the, the feeling of measuring up, of mm-hmm. actually performing like a man. And, um, you know, so I think part of your question too is what do we do as parents? Um, we need to be, you know, willing to allow our sons to opt out as much as opting in. Mm-hmm. And we need to, and, and I, I'll just 
sort of give you the um, other side of that with my daughter, who's uber, uber competitive. Uh, she, she is a competitive swimmer and she plays uh, university sport swimming. Uh, she's on the swim team there. And I don't think you play university swim, but uh, <laughs> you, she's a university swim athlete and, you know, has, has been competitive all through her life. She's also, um, you know, been on hockey teams and she's also been actively engaged in lots of sports where she felt um, this kind of pressure around femininity mm-hmm. and the way girls should or should not be so competitive and should or should not demonstrate a strength on the field. And, and I think that goes alongside with how we think about masculinity and the singular and our need to really think about masculinities and the plural. And the, and the fact that with our children, as you're pointing to, so how do we support them um, if they're not as heavily invested in these sports? And, and that does uh, beg the question about if they're not that heavily invested and they show a lack of deep interest, then perhaps we should offer alternative activities. I want to also point out, you know, so there is all the messages around masculinity and athleticism. And I also see that there is permission in athletics to demonstrate affection. And that that is a place where it's okay for guys to hug each other, to pat each other on the butt, and it's acceptable. And so there is, I can't imagine for some boys and men, it's like, oh, this relief of like, I can show how how I feel about this person in that safe arena. So how do we, how do we unpack that? Yeah, it's again, um, interesting, right? That um, this is sort of contradiction almost, or this tension where we are Mm -hmm. an arena um, of sport and athleticism, and yet you bring in this notion of emotion and public expression of emotion. So it's almost this contradiction of, well, how can I show my, emotional well-being in an arena that is meant to to test us in our strength and courage and um, I think we just need to acknowledge the fact that we do get license to show certain emotions on the field not all emotions Mm -hmm. Uh, it's very difficult uh, for men for example to show deep vulnerability and crushing sadness on the field. Uh, and, and I think we need to be careful when we talk about elite athletes because they already have license. They already are privileged uh, in those positions. And we can critique when some of these athletes, hockey players, football players might show public emotion, but they nonetheless are in a very different category than uh, your children, my children, uh, when they're, you know, six and seven years old. Uh, and if, for example, you know, a seven-year-old boy started crying on the field, um, my research and what we see in the day-to-day is that wouldn't be supportive as, as much as it would be discouraged uh, because clearly um, 
that goes against what you're supposed to be doing on the field, which is to be tough and to be um, show your expertise, your strength, right? And I, I think we need to remind ourselves, there's a, it's a long narrative around sports, athleticism, and the body and the representation of our bodies, men's bodies, boys' bodies as emblematic of masculinity and a very narrow, narrow vision of masculinity. And just one last point before I keep going on is, is that we also need to, as parents, to, to be, and, and this isn't rocket science, but we need to be very observant. Uh, I recall um, a friend of mine uh, whose, whose son was in swimming and uh, the son wore a t-shirt because he was, he was embarrassed of his body. And, and he was a young boy. He was eight years old and, and was already becoming aware of his body and what it looked like relative to other boys' bodies. So again, I think, um, you know, again, some of my research I've done is that boys, for example, experience body shaming. They experience the ridicule uh, that goes on around their bodies. And so going back to our earlier point, we, we as parents need to be sure that we're listening, that we're observing, that we are aware of how our sons are experiencing these activities and not get too wrapped up into, but you're going to be among the boys and, and be one of the boys. Mm-hmm. So what I hear you saying is that it really is paying attention to your individual child. Um, what is your child expressing? What is your child's feeling and reaction to the sport? Uh, you know, for me, it was always, everybody occasionally doesn't want to do something, even something they enjoy. But if you have a kid that is like consistently not wanting to go to practice, not wanting to stop what he's doing to go to practice, maybe it's time to not do that activity anymore. Maybe there is something else he would rather be doing. I think that's that's the bottom line is that if your son isn't talking to you directly and, and telling you about his discomfort, for example, around being in the locker room, mm-hmm. Um, you know, and you mentioned about physical health education class, um, how many boys actually have the opportunity to, to withdraw from physical health? Um, for many, it's, it's mandatory. You have to take a course. I'm thinking more of high school now. Mm -hmm. Um, it's mandatory. So, uh, you know, when I was doing some research, a national study, I was surprised about the courage and strength of some of the boys I spoke to who, who day in and day out went into those uh, physical health education classes and absolutely dreaded going there. But they showed such, they, they had this facade, this strength up front, to say, I've got to go and do it. Um, and along the same lines, they had developed strategies to keep themselves safe from the bodily surveillance, to keep themselves safe from the ridicule that many of them experienced. And so, so again, to your point, Jennifer, is that's, that's where we need to really sort of listen to what our sons are telling us, showing us. And, and also even when uh, we find our sons are really in the center of the um, sporting arena and maybe they're leading in there, we also need to be aware of, well, what does that mean? if they are leading or if they're heavily invested, 
what does that tell you about the kind of boys and the kind of images of masculinity that are being held up in those spaces? Um, because we may not want to accept those lock, stock, and barrel in and of themselves as he's a success. He's, he's one of the boys and he's a really good star player um, because that's got a lot of baggage to it in and of itself. If we don't help our boys, young men understand uh, what they're participating in. Last night, Janet, I went and saw a high school production of Mary Poppins. And Janet knows I love musical theater. I love theater. Uh, Mary Poppins, I mean, come on. But one of, one of the parts I really enjoyed, and I'm thinking of with this conversation, is that one of the people in the show, um, I don't know if he's a junior or a senior this year, but he just played an important role on the high school football team that went to state for the first time in how many years. And he is a big guy. He's the kind of guy that you look at and you go, he plays football. And he was up there on the stage dancing and singing. And I think that that is such a, those moments are such great examples for all of our boys. Like it, it doesn't have to be either, or it can be both. There are many different ways to be a boy, many different ways to be a man. You don't have to slot into one box or the other. Right. And, and I, I think that's, that's a great point. And, and partially what the research shows is the more that boys or children have an opportunity to try to, to express themselves in different ways, then the healthier they're going to be in terms of their own well-being, because they, they see that they don't need to adhere to, again, those fairly rigid and what can be very damaging scripts, if you will, mm -hmm. of masculinity. Mm -hmm. They actually see that there's a way to rethink uh, what they need to show their parents, what they need to show their friends. And make no mistake, I'm sure we're all aware of, boys know what the rules of masculinity are. Oh, yes. And, and they know in what context they need to prove themselves, uh, be it to their father, their mother, or to their friends. Um, they know uh, how to perform in those contexts. And again, uh, whether we're able to say it explicitly what those rules are or whether we show it implicitly, boys are being schooled in masculinity um, in different spaces. You mentioned before the license that elite male athletes have, right? I mean, once you reach this level, like you're kind of socially untouchable because you have proven everything there is to prove. And I'm wondering what your thoughts are. You know, some of this shift maybe that we've seen in recent years with uh, elite male athletes talking about things like mental health and talking about things like parenthood and, and crying. Do you think that that will sort of have a lasting impact? Do you think that will shift? Do you think that will affect um, and eventually trickle down to what's acceptable in say youth athletics for little boys? It's really hard to, to say the impact. I would say that we are seeing more public conversation around race, around mental health, uh, taking a knee on, on the, the field, uh, around, you know, Simone Biles uh, talking about mental health. Um, so I think there's an opening up of the dialogue and, and elite athletes have that opportunity. Um, whether they, 
they fall into that opportunity out of necessity or whether they purposely and intentionally um, make a public statement. Whether it trickles down, it's a good question. Uh, we, we could hope that it would, but again, we have to remind ourselves that not all, all athletes are positioned similarly. There's different, again, different kinds of um, currency in different sports. And so you have more privilege in some sports, uh, more larger platforms. For mm-hmm. example, in the NHL, I mean, the, they're currently going through uh, cases where um, there's um, misogyny going on. There's issues of rape cases that, um, you know, sexual violence and um, the NHL is having to, to make some decisions about who they allow to be on these teams and, and whether they're going to take, um, you know, issues of diversity, equity, and inclusion seriously or not. Mm-hmm. And, and what does that look like for professional sports? And so, um, you know, on the one hand, I'd like to think that we're moving in the right direction. On the other hand, it's very difficult for institutions like hockey associations to dislodge itself from uh, very long and deep narratives of what it means to, to play hockey and, and uh, to maintain a culture of masculinity in there. And, and we see it in the simplest of terms, in terms of um, there, there'll be, for example, if you cast yourself back a few years, um, no, no high sticking or, or no fighting, uh, you know, and people equated hockey with fights. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, you know, the old adage of, what was it? There was a, there was a fight and a hockey game broke out in it. Um, you know, that, that idea that, that we used to expect fights. Mm-hmm. And then when the push was on um, due to concussions and safety, we, we started to gradually accept the fact that maybe fights weren't the be all and end all of hockey. But they also, again, uh, that relates back to how do we want um, these sports to, to be played out and what kinds of masculinity get played out in different arenas. Mm-hmm. I want to point out that uh, Time Magazine just put Simone Biles on their uh, cover of the year. So we are having these conversations here in Portland. Our top guy in trailblazers basketball is no longer employed because of his behavior. So that, you know, the conversations are happening. I think it's, those are kind of the big picture and the outward expression and where parents really need to be watchful is where the subtle, where the subtle messages are happening. And it's a constant conversation. It's not just one. And as you were talking about the the star athlete in the locker room in high school, you know, the conversation with him of how, of looking around, like how are those other boys feeling that aren't necessarily the best athletes? How are you treating them? How are you bringing them into this um, arena of, of sport? And I know from my work with parents, there's the parents out there who worry about their boys because they are not athletic. And as you said, you know, point them towards other activities that can be still expend energy, still, you know, help them find their own way with their, with their own bodies. And, and the more we do that, the more acceptable it becomes. Right. And, and along that lines, I I think 
you, you can sort of just shifting a bit from the athleticism. I mean, similar can be said around academia, around being good in school. And um, for many boys, um, that message has not been so clear about performing well in school. And, and so I think along that lines, we can actually validate um, boys and certain kinds of masculinity when boys perform well in school, when boys are good readers in school, when boys are invested in school. And again, it goes to your point, Janet, in terms of what, what is going to be enduring and what forms of masculinity do we really want our sons to, to um, invest themselves in and, and know why they're invested in those forms of masculinity? And as you say I, that too, it's also how we talk to our young boys about being fathers and being nurturers and care providers. And that's a, a conversation we need to have consistently also. Right. And, and I'll, I'll tell you, and um, I mean, I think you're both aware of, I did a Ted talk recently and um, I, I spoke in that Ted talk about um, both about parenting, about myself as a father and um, raising my uh, son and my daughter. And I also spoke about um, the intersection of masculinity and mental health and the cost uh, for, for men to uh, hold back on showing their emotions, on not being able to express their authentic selves and um, you know, um, suicide and uh, where that play itself out uh, for us as men um, because of this fear of being vulnerable. And so again, to your point, I think uh, we need to be very smart. And, and I'm not saying, um, as we all know, parenting is no easy job. Um, and uh, I think increasingly we've become aware of the kind of messaging through marketing um, that, that push children and pull children in different directions. And, mm -hmm. and so, you know, we can be the mediators as parents. Uh, in this gendering process. Mm -hmm. I'm going to put a link to Michael's TED Talk in the show notes. Um, I watched it. It's very powerful. It's not long, so you don't have to worry about setting aside an afternoon. You can watch it quickly and, and take that in. Uh, I can see how, as a parent listening to this episode, it's easy to feel a little bit overwhelmed. Like, I am just trying to figure out how to get my kid to sit on his chair and eat supper. And now I'm supposed to be thinking about what quest, what he's learning about masculinity from sport and having all these deep questions and I'm overwhelmed. Ah, but take some deep breaths, take deep breaths because what you said a minute ago, you said two words that I think we can boil this down to when you talked about the need for men and boys, everybody to be their authentic selves. So if you find yourself getting overwhelmed, stop, look at your kid, watch your kid and do what you can in that moment and the next one to give your child the space and the tools that he needs to be who he is. 
in the world? I all I, I all I can say is applaud, applaud. Um, I, I can only echo that, and and we all I, again, I think we all know parenting parenting's challenging in the best of times. And part of what you may think is, I mean, checking in with your children, mm-hmm. um, having honest conversations with them about their friend groups, about um, the kinds of sports and activities they're in, about their comfort or discomfort around their own bodies and what those represent. Um, you know, and as I said earlier, with some of my research, um, if we continue to think that boys don't have body image issues, we need to think again, mm-hmm. because we're in, in the space now in a time where we can actually have those dialogues with boys. Mm-hmm. And this is not a us, them, it's a girl issue, it's a boy issue. This is an us issue. And it's about how bodily practices, how the envisioning or revisioning of our bodies um, has an opportunity now to be reconsidered. And so, so I, I think, you know, to your point, I mean, breathe, yeah. catch your breath, support our children in their own diverse identities and allow them to try on or try out um, different activities as, as sort of venues uh, for being healthy, respectful individuals. It's what we want, right, Janet? Absolutely. Michael, thank you so much for this conversation. It's my pleasure. I'm really glad that we had this opportunity. Thank you for having me. And Thanks for joining us. If you liked this podcast, please share it with a friend. We are Jennifer L.W. Fink and Janet Allison, and we appreciate you supporting our sponsors so we can continue to bring you these podcasts. That's sambucallusa.com and lcpmedical.com. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator.